As always, I want to say thank you for being here this morning. It's always a privilege to be able to fellowship uh, with our church body. Uh, yesterday was a phenomenal day of football. Um, I'm not talking about Georgia. I'm talking about my boys and, and my nephew, SJ. They had a great kickoff yesterday morning. It was good. <laughs> North Oconee Titans went 2-0 yesterday, so it was, it was a good day in the Settles household. Luke chapter number 1, verse 26, simply declares, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city, uh, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favorite one, the Lord is with you. But she, great, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and, his, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Uh, just for a brief moment this morning, we want to share uh, from the simple um, sermon title, an amazing announcement, an amazing announcement. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father God, we thank you for um, the privilege that you give us, God, to be able to open up your word. God, I'm amazed that every time we stand in this place that you meet us here. Um, God, I thank you that this is not a meeting between um, men and women, but this is a meeting um, where feeble and broken and imperfect people get to hear from a perfect God. God, I thank you that in the preaching moment, God, that we are able to focus on your word, God. And when your word is preached, God, we thank you that your word allows us to hear your voice. God, we want to simply hear your voice this morning. God, we want to hear a message from you. God, so I pray that you would use me this morning, God, that you would use my mouth, God, that you would bring back to, to remembrance my time of study, God. And I pray God, that whatever you desire to do in this time, God, we just pray that you will be honored and that you will be glorified. And we pray specifically, Lord God, that we would not leave here the same. We pray, God, that as a result of hearing from you, God, that we would know how to follow you, that we would know how to tell others about you, God, that we would be so set ablaze this morning, that our hearts would so burn, that we would leave here desiring for someone else to hear about you and to come to know you. We love you, Father, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we live in a day and time where people place a premium on credentials. Uh, if we hire someone, we want to know that they are capable of doing the job. Uh, if, we, if we ask someone advice, we want to know that they are an expert on the subject. 
Uh, the more we live, the more we seem to be consumed with titles and diplomas and achievements. Uh, when people have those things attached to their name, the culture will tell us that we should entrust ourselves to those kinds of people. Uh, now, from a human perspective, uh, yes, you need credentials. Yes, you don't want to go to a doctor uh, that, that, that has not been to medical school. You don't want to have a lawyer that has not been to law school. Uh, you certainly do not want to uh, be unwise. But when you look at things from a natural perspective, we must always consider that there's an other side of the coin and there is a spiritual perspective. When we look at life from a spiritual perspective, when we look at life from God's perspective, we see that God oftentimes uses people, places, circumstances, and situations that do not line up with what we think should happen. That God does things in such a way where God supersedes credentials, that God supersedes experience, that God has a way of endowing us with his power, with his strength, and his love. And God has a way of making up what we are lacking by his grace. When we think about what God wants to do in our lives, when we think about how God desires to speak and to work in our lives, we must understand that the Lord has a consistent and a faithful track record in using broken and messed up kinds of people. Uh, it has been said that most Christians never get fully engaged in ministry or most Christians never make a commitment to extending God's kingdom because simply they do not feel qualified. They do not make a commitment to God's kingdom because they do not feel like they have the right credentials. And this morning, my brothers and sisters, I want to be very, very, very clear and very simple. I want to remind us this morning that when God invites us to take a step of faith, when God invites us uh, to radically do something different, when God invites us to follow him on this journey called the Christian life, I want to encourage you that your credentials mean absolutely nothing to God. When God gives us an invitation to take a step of faith, rather than uh, faithfully accepting the invitation, many times we fearfully reject it because we are caught up in thinking that we are subpar we quickly begin the comparison game. I'm not like this person. I'm not eloquent like that person. I don't have the experience of that person. I don't have the degree like this person. I don't have the experience of that person. And when you think about it, a lot of times Satan uses that against us to handicap us and to hinder us from being the people who God has called us to be. Um, we quickly play the comparison game. We are like Zachariah who quickly uh, turned his focus away from God's promise and we begin to focus on our problems. We lack, when we allow ourselves to, to think like um, because we lack experience or because we lack a title or we lack a degree, um, we begin to, to, to allow, like we said last week, that quarter to block out the sun. We, if you missed the sermon on last week, we, we simply said that, that a quarter is small and insignificant, but if you place it close enough to your eye, that quarter can block out the sun. And a lot of times our limitations are like that. A lot of times our struggles are like that. We allow the things that are small and insignificant to block out what the Son of God wants to do in our lives. Church family, this morning, I want to remind you, I want to encourage you that when God invites you to take a step of faith, I want you to humbly and faithfully take the step of faith. 
Now, I need to qualify this because when we take steps of faith uh, easily, our minds go to different places. Uh, some people are looking at me like, is he calling me to be in ministry? Uh, is he calling me to plant a church? Is he calling me to leave uh, my job and sell everything and give it all away to the poor? And when, we, when we think about this idea of taking steps of faith, yes, God can do that. Yes, God can call you into ministry. Yes, God can call you away from what is comfortable. But, but I want to make it a little bit more practical this morning. When you think about a step of faith, I want you to think about that Bible study in your dorm room that God is leading you to start. When you think about that step of faith, I'm talking about that conversation on your job with that person who you know is not a Christian that the Lord is leading you to start. When I talk about a step of faith, I'm talking about uh, that person who God has placed on your heart to disciple who you are not willing to speak to. I'm talking about that person who you know is struggling. I'm talking about that person you know is asking questions, that person you know who is hurting, who is lost, who is abandoned, who's going through a really rough season, and you know God is calling you to pray for that person. But rather than praying for that person, we reject the opportunity rather than than faithfully accepting the opportunity. When I think about these steps of faith, it does remind me of one of my favorite passages of Scripture. We talked about this a little bit last Wednesday night in Bible study, but Ephesians 2 and 10 simply says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let me bring it home and say it this way. So when God brings an Ephesians 2 moment, a moment where God is prepared for you to do some work before the foundation of the world, how do you respond to God's invitation? I know you haven't had a visit from Gabriel. I hope nobody can say I have, but anyway. (laughs) I know you've not had a visit from an angel. But when you open up God's word and you have that devotional time and God invites you to apply his word, how are you responding to the invitation? When the scripture tells us that we are to be living epistles, that God gives you an invitation to live out your faith, how are you responding to the invitation? When you read Matthew 28, when God tells us that we are called to make disciples, right? How are you responding to the invitation? When God tells us in his word that we are to love our enemies, when God tells us that we are to forgive, when God tells us that we are uh, to be concerned about the least and the less and the broken, when God tells us that we should be concerned about uh, those uh, who, the, about the widows and the orphans, how are we responding to God's invitation for us? A lot of us, we don't respond to the invitation because immediately, rather than focusing on the promise, once again, we begin to focus on our problems. When God gives us an invitation to take a step of faith, a lot of times we begin to, 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 to speak to ourselves uh, with language that, that is consistent with, I'm not qualified, I'm not capable, I don't have the proper training, I'm not smart enough, I'm not outgoing enough, I'm not articulate enough, I'm not confident in front of people, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, rather than focusing on what God is and who God is and what God has called us to do. When God gives us an invitation, I want to encourage you to focus on the promise rather than the problem. I want to encourage you to focus on the promise rather than your personal performance. Because the more I live, the more I see that God uses people who the world would never pick. I know you guys remember growing up and being on the playground 
and having people um, uh, pick, a, pick a team. For some people, this illustration uh, brings back a bad memory because you were not picked early. Uh, for some of us, or some of y'all, you will pick last. <laughs> I say that jokingly, but I want to make a point here. When God picks his team, God doesn't pick the five-star. When God picks the team, God doesn't pick who the world would pick. When God picks his team, God's roster is full of a bunch of average Joes who, after they have been filled with his spirit and endowed with his power, they can do great and mighty things. The more I live, the more I see how and why God uses broken things. God uses broken soil to produce a crop. God uses broken clouds to give us rain. God uses broken grain to give us bread. God uses broken bread to give us strength. God uses a broken alabaster box to give us great perfume. God uses broken people to give forth great praise. I know none of us want to be broken. I know especially the men in the room the idea of being broken goes countercultural to what we are taught. We are, we are taught not to be broken. We are taught to be strong. We are taught to never quit. But one of the blessings of the Christian life is that we are broken by the Lord. You think about this idea of being broken. I, I'm always reminded of a wild horse, that when a wild horse is broken, it doesn't lose its power. It doesn't change its nature. But when a wild horse is broken, it means that all of its power all of its might, all of its strength is brought under authority. When God breaks you, what God wants to do is he wants to bring you under his authority. When God breaks you, God wants to bring you to the end of yourself. When God breaks you, it is not to hurt you, but it's to help you live under his authority. When we think about the passage, God specializes in using broken pieces because God uses broken people and broken pieces to create a phenomenal story that ultimately gives him the glory. In the text, we see that God picks a person and God chooses to work in a place that would not be prominent and would not usually be picked. When God makes his decision, the, the selection is not what we expect. God selects an imperfect person. When God picked Mary to be the mother of Jesus, God chooses to pick a broken person. But the truth of the matter is, in picking a broken person, God picks the weakest person so that we can see how strong he really is. Before we get into our text, I think it's just too important not to read the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verse 26, um, verses 26 to 29 simply say, for consider your calling, brothers or sisters. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. Why does God use the broken pieces? Why does God use those who are not perfect? So that you and I have no room to boast. On the opposite, of that, on the opposite side of that passage, it's a reminder that you and I want to boast. 
Uh, those who know me intimately know that I love to boast. They know that if I get you, I'm going to tell you about it. If I beat you, it's probably the worst thing because I'm going to not let you forget that I beat you. I, I, could, I could name a few people in the room who I beat pretty good, but it will probably lose a couple people, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> when you think about it, catch this. God has to put us in a position where you and I have absolutely no room to beat our chest and boast. God is going to put you in a place. Now, here's the thing. Either you can choose to humble yourself or God will humble you, but God is going to get you to a place where you are going to give him the credit. And a lot of times, because of our pride and because of our hard-heartedness, we end up causing pain and shame and hurt because we are just too prideful to humble ourselves and do things God's way. In the text, we have an announcement. We have a phenomenal announcement, and this announcement is one that we could be, that that is not just um, uh, a private announcement, but it is a public proclamation based upon the scriptures, and it reminds us of the faithfulness of God. It reminds us of how God is able to give grace to those who are in need of grace. When you think about it, the, the, the announcement first begins with a very humble approach. Verse 28 says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favorite one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the seeing and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, many of us are familiar with the story, but as we study today, we need to remember that Mary was somewhere between the ages of 12 and 14 years old. She was unread. She was, unexp- uh, she was very inexperienced. She was not cosmopolitan. cosmopolitan. Uh, she did not have a TV. She did not have a computer. She did not have a cell phone. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary, he told her that she would give birth to a son. And he told her that the son's name would be Jesus. When you think about the context of the text, Mary didn't have any of the qualifications or prerequisites necessary for being a mother, let alone being the mother of the Messiah. People had great expectations for the coming of the Messiah, but those expectations did not include a poor girl from Jerusalem. It did not include a a woman who would get pregnant out of wedlock. Um, Not only did, did the world, not only would the world have not said that she was not qualified, even Mary herself says, I cannot be pregnant because I have not known a man. I know we know the end of the story, but let's just enter into the story a little bit harder. Like, what would it be like to be married, to be engaged, to never have been with a man, but to receive an angelic messenger that tells her this kind of prophecy? Well, like, what would it be like to be a woman in the culture? To be so shocked, to be so overwhelmed with this, with this weighty message. When Gabriel brings his greeting, he says, greetings, you are, highly, <clears throat> you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. She was highly favored, but she was also highly fearful. It's the truth that when God reveals his plans for us, it can make us fearful. When God gives you a glimpse of your future, it can be overwhelming. When God reveals to you how God desires to use you, it can bring some fear into our lives. When God brings some of those Ephesians 2 opportunities to our attention, it can be frightening. 
It can, it can be frightening to, to know God is calling you to do something and know that the world will not understand what God is calling you to do. It can be super frightening to know that obedience to the Lord means that there was going to be opposition from the world. She was highly favored, but she was also highly fearful and frightened. Um, I can remember um, about eight years ago when I, when I felt led to plant this church. Um, I, I can remember, a, a, I'm glad my wife is here. I can remember a conversation I had with her about planting this church. Uh, no money, no members, no place to meet. Uh, we had two kids uh, under three years old, and she was pregnant. And here I come home talking about planting the church. And I remember having that conversation with her about, you know, what God was calling us to do and how it's going to be great and how it's going to be special. And I can remember her asking me, Thomas, how in the world is this going to happen? Now, to her credit, she supported me and she loved me and she got behind me and she did everything she could to help this thing come to pass. But I remember, I remember being very fearful over what the Lord has revealed, had revealed to me. There are going to be times in your life when God's going to show you some things that are going to happen in your life and through your life, and it's going to cause fear to set in your life. When God begins to speak to you about the things that he wants you to change, when God begins to speak to you about the, the steps of faith that he desires for you to take, I want to encourage you, it's okay for moments in your life to be fearful when you do not understand exactly what God had called you to do. I'm so thankful when I look around this room, that, that we were faithful to do what God's called us to do. I mean, there's so many great relationships in this room. There's so many great friendships that I have because of what God has called us to do. And, and before I really understood what God was calling us to do, um, before I knew uh, Sean or Andy, before I knew uh, Catherine or Georgianne, before I knew uh, Lori, before I knew any of you guys, I knew what God was calling me to do. And in doing what God called me to do, I had to remember, most importantly, that it was God who was with me. When God calls you to do something, the thing you must always remember is who's with you. Um, that there's times in our lives where we may feel alone. The times in our lives where we may feel forgotten about, but the scripture gives us a phenomenal promise that God is with us. Mary um, receives a humble approach when the angel says, Greetings, O favorite one, the Lord is with you. The statement conveys the idea of one who is the recipient of grace. Um, in the context and the culture, uh, women were in a very low status in ancient times, but Mary would have found great comfort and encouragement by what uh, the angel had to say. Now, the Latin Vulgate renders the Greek uh, highly favored as grante planea, which means full of grace. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has taken that statement to mean that Mary had an overabundance of grace, so much so that Mary can now extend grace to others. In Catholic theology, she became an intermediate uh, source of grace. But when you look at the text in its, in its context, when you look at uh, the Greek in its, in, its, um, in its perfect passive form, which is, which is there, this is speaking to a completed action by someone else. In short, the text is saying that Mary received grace based upon the actions of someone else. When you think about it from that perspective, what is being told to Mary is really a foretaste of what is going to happen with us in our lives. When you think about the text, Mary does not have a special position 
as a mediator between us and God. But Mary herself needed a mediator so that she could have connection with God. When you think about it, the angel approaches Mary as one in need of grace. The angel approaches Mary as one who is imperfect and flawed. And in approaching her that way, it sets forth the model of how God approaches me, but also how I am to approach others. I want you to think about it from this perspective. How does God approach you? Like when God approaches you, how does God come at you? Psalm 103 verse 10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward us, toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. When you think about Psalm 103, it is a reminder that God leads with grace. God approaches us and deals with us based upon his love for us rather than dealing with us based solely upon our sin. If I am to be like Christ, if I am to to be an imitator of God, should I not also lead the same way? Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I was reading this passage this week, and it really did challenge me. Thomas, how do you, like, Thomas, how does God approach you, but also how do you approach others? Like, how are you connecting with others? Are you leading with grace? Are you leading with love? Are you leading with a position where you are are seeing them as a, a person who is a recipient of God's grace? Or are you seeing them as a person who is a recipient or should be a recipient of your wrath? So first, the text begins with a very humble approach. But then secondly, there is an honest announcement, an honest announcement. Verse 30 says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Uh, when we, <clears throat> we know that. There's an honest announcement because the angel reveals five uh, future facts about the baby that would be, would be born. First, we see that, 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 that she would conceive and bear a son. Every Hebrew woman would receive this news as joy because in the culture, there was nothing greater than having a child. But they also were celebratory when they had a son only because that meant that the legacy of the family would continue. To, to have a son in the culture meant that they had an opportunity uh, to be a branch or uh, to be a part of the family that would continue the legacy that would bring forth the Messiah. It was a really big deal. Uh, secondly, she is told he will be great. and He will be called the son of the most high. Earlier, uh, the angel told Zechariah that John the Baptist would be great. But this time, in addition to saying uh, Jesus would be great, it tells us that Jesus would be known as the son of the most high. 
It is a reminder that Jesus is greater, that John was a great character from a biblical standpoint, that, that John was a great forerunner for Jesus, but that Jesus is greater than John. When you think about the biblical passage, there are a lot of men and women who did great things for God. There are a lot of men and women who did things to extend the kingdom of God, even outside of Scripture, over the history of our faith. There have been people who've done great things for God, but catch this. There's none greater than Jesus. There's no one more important than Christ. There's no one who lived a better example or model than Jesus. I love Tim Keller on this point. He says that in every sense, Jesus is the true and better version of every person we've ever seen. He says Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden. He says Jesus is the true and better Abel whose blood cries out, not for condemnation, but for acquittal. He says that Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God, who left everything that was comfortable and familiar to create a new people for himself. He says that Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was offered up, who was not just offered up by his father, but was truly sacrificed on the altar. He says that Jesus is the true and better Joseph who was who was betrayed by his brothers, but still forgave his brothers. He says Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap and mediates a new covenant between God and his people. He says Jesus is the true and better David who gives the people the victory, though they never picked up a stone to fight. He says Jesus is the real rock, the real Passover, the perfect lamb. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. He says that Jesus is always our focus because Jesus is the greatest to ever do it. Amen. When we think about it, because Jesus was greater and truer, it leads us to the third promise. He will be on a throne forever. Fourthly, it says that he will be called the Hebrew Messiah. He will be the redeemer of the nation and the world. And then fifthly, he will have a kingdom that will endure forever. By the announcement, Mary would have known very clearly that the Lord had chose her to be the mother of the Messiah. So first, it begins with a humble approach, and there's an honest announcement, and then thirdly, there's a hopeful answer. Verse 34 says, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, uh, with, 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 with who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. One of the best uh, things about walking through the books of the Bible is that we get an opportunity to, to connect the two narratives together. Uh, last week we spoke about Zechariah and how he received the promise, but ultimately he responded in unbelief. Um, I want to contrast Mary's response and Zechariah's response. Uh, Zechariah stumbled in unbelief, but Mary submits in faith. Verse 38 again says, Behold, I am the servant. Behold, you're in control. Behold, let it be according to me to your word. 
Behold, let your will be done in my life. When we read her response, it certainly reminds us of other believers who faithfully responded to God. When you read her, 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 her response, it just reminds me of Isaiah chapter number six when Isaiah is in the temple. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Doesn't it remind you of Esther? Chapter number four, verse 16, when she said, if I perish, I perish. Doesn't remind you of Ruth. In Ruth chapter number one, verse 16, when she says that your people will be my people. Doesn't it remind you of Job's response when he says, even if he kills me, yet will I trust him. And doesn't it remind you of Jesus' response in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Father, not my will be done, but Father, your will be done. I think it's important for us to reflect here. This is how people who are faithful to God respond, even when they don't understand it all. The good news for us is we won't always understand what God is doing. I won't always understand God's plan. Mary's question is totally different than Zechariah's question. Zechariah asked, how will this happen? And then he turned and focused on the problem rather than the promise. Mary's question was out of confusion. She was genuinely confused. How can I be pregnant when I've never been with a man? She gives the response. The angel tells her that God would do the impossible. The angel provides a straightforward answer. He declared that this would be a supernatural conception involving no man. It would be the work of God rather than the work of man. And Mary responds in faith. And when Mary responds in faith, it is important for us to recognize that she would have faced public shame. She would have faced the prospect of divorce or even death. And though she faced all this, Mary spoke in faith and she concluded, Lord, I want your will to be done in my life. She says, Lord, let it be according to your word. As a pastor, not even as a pastor, as a, as a, as a brother in Christ, I pray that we have a community of believers who will never be in a position where we understand everything that God is doing, but we will have enough faith to say, Lord, let it be according to your word. Lord, whatever you desire for me, I want to be humble enough and I want to be faithful enough to you to accept what you have for me. Chris, you can come on up. I'm finished. When we think about the announcement, I really believe there are three very simple points of application here for us in terms of our announcement. Okay? When we think about the announcement, the first thing we've got to realize is the announcement should cause us to recognize that God uses imperfect people. Now, I want to I clarify this because it's easy for somebody to think, well, dog, it don't matter how I live because God uses imperfect people. That's not what I'm saying. The scriptures are very clear that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. I am not talking about unrepented sin. I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about the understanding that God using me has nothing to do with my personal ability or my talent. Has nothing to do with my credentials. Has nothing to do with my family background. God using me has everything to do with my availability to God. When I submit myself to the Lord, I believe God can use anybody. And he specializes in using imperfect people. 
Secondly, the announcement should cause us to rely on the perfect person, right? The whole point of the Messiah coming was that the people needed a redeemer. If the people could do it on their own, if the people could have, could have, could have got it right in their own strength, there would have been no need for a Messiah. So as Christians, we want to learn to rely on Jesus. We want to learn to rest in Jesus. We want to learn to make Jesus of first importance in everything that we do. I know that, that it sounds crazy and it's countercultural because our world says work hard, do hard, do more, grind hard. Relative it is, we've got to learn how to rely on the Lord and trust that he is able to do what I am not able to do. So yes, I've got to recognize that God uses imperfect people. I've got to recognize that I rely on the right person. But lastly, I want to respond in faith. I want to be humble enough to say, Lord, I don't understand everything you're doing. Lord, this don't even make sense. From my perspective, this cannot happen. But Lord, I believe that your word is true. I believe that nothing is impossible without you. That nothing is impossible apart from you. So Lord, if your word says it, I'm going to believe it. Lord, if your word says that I can love my wife like Christ loved the church, I'm going to believe it. Lord, if your word says that I can be light in a dark world, I'm going to believe it. Lord, if your word says that I can follow you and make disciples, I'm going to believe it. Lord, if your word tells me that, that I can be a living epistle, I'm going to believe it. Lord, if your word, whatever your word tells me, Lord, I'm going to respond in faith. In the areas of my life when I'm struggling, the areas of my life where I'm not there yet, I'm going to pray like my man and Mark, who was, who was humble enough to say, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. The areas that I'm struggling in, accepting your will, then I'm going to ask for your help. And I'm going to trust, once again, that he who began to work in me is faithful to finish it.